All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is uh, someone who I've gotten to know a little bit and really admire the, the work she's doing in, in political reform, Catherine Gale. Thanks so much for joining us. Bradley, I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, so you are, um, I, I think, has sort of emerged as sort of one of the leading voices of political reform um, in this country. Your, your book, uh, which I highly recommend, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy, um, has had a big impact and done really well. Uh, you have taken this this Final Five concept and really moved it uh, forward in a way that I think people wouldn't have necessarily expected. So all super impressive, but you came at this not from the traditional lens of someone who has spent a lifetime in politics. You know, you were running a, a dairy company. So just help our listeners understand <laughs> how you ended up in this spot. Yeah, it actually... Uh, I. Running the dairy company is in many ways what led me to here. Uh, so how I describe it is that I was, you know, doing what business people do, which is figuring out how to grow my company. And it was clear that I needed to make my customers happy and that if I didn't, a competitor would make them happy and then I would, you know, do less well. So happy customers was, was a, you know, made my company do well. It was a win-win. And at one point, I was working on my company strategy, and it became real clear to me in the other side of my head that politics, for some reason, didn't work this way, which is to say that the people and the organizations in the business of politics, those that are making their money in the political system and making their careers in the political system, we're doing well even when the customers, that is to say the American citizens, the voters, have never been more unhappy. So there's something, there's a disconnect whenever you see an industry where the players in the industry are doing super well and the customers are not doing well. And that was really the first key. So it went from there. I developed a new lens to look at politics, which is this lens of competition. And what we saw is that our political industry is a duopoly, but there, meaning there's only two players. There's nothing really wrong with having only two. The problem that we have in our duopoly in the political system is that the current two players, Republicans and Democrats, are guaranteed to be the only two ongoingly, regardless of what they do or don't get done for their customers, the citizens. And that's where the problem comes in. So I took what I had learned in business and really began to use it to, to analyze politics in this new way. And the whole point of it was not to say something interesting about why things don't work well in our politics. It was to figure out what could we, what should we change in our politics so that the results would be different. And that led me to eventually sell my company in 2015 so I could do this work full time. So from cheese to here. Yeah. So you see this kind of how the world works in the business you're running. You see all of these sort of structural problems and market inefficiencies when it comes to the equivalent of it in politics. And but like, OK, you, you, you did it because you succeeded. Now it all makes sense. But what made you think in 2015 that someone who ran a dairy company should sell their business and put all of their resources into political reform? Yeah, 
because I learned a long time ago, in my case, because my mother died when she was 46 and I was 23 and my youngest brother was only 11, that life is very short. And when I have to make decisions in my life, that is something that always comes back to me. And at that point, what led me to do that was not because I knew for sure I would be successful, and that still has yet to be proven anyway. It was that I couldn't unsee what I had seen. I couldn't unsee the solution that had become apparent. And since the solution was not being talked about by anyone else, I just couldn't go on as an American citizen, as a parent, and know what I believed I knew and do nothing about it. It was, it was in, sen in a sense a calling. I just didn't want to die without having done my best in this area. Does that sound corny? That's what it was. No, no, it, it, it sounds, well, by the way, it's, it's right because you actually did it, right? It's, it's one thing if this was like a speech you were right. giving or we were writing a, a play or something like that. But yeah, this is how it actually turned out. So, okay, but, but it doesn't all just sort of come together by accident. You, you, you create, you know, the IPI, the Institute for Political Innovation. How did you go about doing that? How did you know sort of how to put that kind of thing together? And, and how did you decide what would really be the, the issue that, that mattered most to you? So the, the first thing I'll say is how have I, why did I create IPI, then an institute? How did I know how to put it together? It's definitely this been a process of trusting my, not just my instincts, but trusting my instincts, my history, what I learned was successful while I was running that business. So once again, running the business, which in my case was a turnaround, you know, I took over a company that was really, really, really struggling and, and turned it around over uh, a seven year period. And everything I learned there ha has put me in a position to know how to run high performing organizations. And so I trust that my judgment is sound and I move fast. So I do not belabor decisions. I do not form committees, although certainly I take tons of input and my team is amazing and you could never be successful if you didn't have a team of people who were running their own parts of your organization very successfully you know, without micromanagement from me. Um, so it's really taking all the lessons from running any organization where you're bringing people together to deliver a cause. And I don't find this not-for-profit or political work to be so much different because humans are humans and our motivations and the way we work well or don't work well together are, I think, reasonably universal. And so you've built some pretty serious allies in the Valley, people like Reid Hoffman, um, and now it's all sort of, you know, taken as, as this sort of successful story. But, you know, how do you convince people that this woman who ran a dairy company all of a sudden knew the right solutions to political reform and that they should kind of go in with you and, and kind of work on it together? You know, no, people don't usually ask me what I did before this, believe it or not. Um, but let, let me just tell you, a, although I should say, 
Although if they were to ask me about running a dairy company, you know, once they understand that it was a high technology food manufacturing company, we were regulated by the Food and Drug Administration nationally. This is a very complex manufacturing process that I ran. Um, it's not regular cheese. And so, and I had 350 employees, you know, a million feet of manufacturing and warehouse space. So we ran 24-7, major food safety concerns always present, et cetera. So I ran a complex and very eventually very successful organization. So to the degree they want to know about that, then it, certainly I have that track record. But but I will say, let me let me tell you a story first about how we convince people. So back when we all used to fly, I had a game that I played, which is can I talk to my seatmate, you know, about final five voting and can I get them to like it by the time we land? I'm and sure I would give my next to, you. <laughs> yeah. to the to the poor person sitting next to me. Yeah. Although I consider it, you know, they were lucky now to know in a sense that we could do something about our politics. So no Basically, most people on airplanes don't talk to the person sitting next to them, and they certainly don't talk about politics. But I did both of those things. And I had, before we had to stop flying for COVID, an almost 100% success rate, and except one person um, didn't speak English, and so I couldn't you know, make that uh, conversation happen. And I, I would give myself extra points if I could be drawing diagrams about the system on like the back of the napkin, you know, before we even took off. And my point in bringing that up is to say that I wouldn't know anything about that person. I wouldn't know if they were deeply involved in politics, if they hated politics, if they were a liberal or conservative. All I would know is that they were someone flying in the United States, so likely an American citizen, and that they probably cared. And universally, they cared. And what? And then when you tell people who care about the country, which is pretty much everybody, something that is totally rational and you make it relevant to their understanding of, of life, then they say, oh, yeah, I'm in for that. And basically, right. that's how you convince anybody. And I would imagine virtually no one said to you, oh, the system is working as it is. We don't need to change, right? Everyone sort of accepts the premise that the system is totally fucked up. Is, is that right? Yes, they do. Got it. So, okay. So, so, so we've kind of talked around Final Five a little bit and kind of how you got to this point. Uh, make the pitch to the listeners, if you don't mind, as to what Final Five is and why it's the solution. Great. So let me say one thing. This is not the only thing we need to do. It is a sine qua non effort, which is to say, if we don't change what we're doing with Final Five voting, it's likely that our other efforts will not end up being successful. So here's the pitch. So right now, in our political system, the way we elect people creates a situation where if a member of Congress in the Senate or the House solves a problem by voting yes on bipartisan consensus legislation on a complex problem like infrastructure, entitlement reform, um, environment, education, anything complex. If they solve that problem by voting yes, that legislator will likely lose their job. Here's why. 
because right now in the country, our elections for House, for example, are determined over 80% of the time in party primaries. So in Republican districts, whoever wins the Republican primary is going to win the general. And in, in blue districts, whoever wins the Democratic primary is going to win, win the general. Only 10% of people vote in the party primaries that determine the winner. And that 10% on the left and on the right has one, one element in common with each other. And that is that both of those 10% are defined by what's called out-party hatred. So they really don't like the other party more than any other characteristic about them, yeah. which means that they don't want any compromise. So the people get their jobs by winning party primaries, and they have to answer first to those voters. And the main dictum from, from those voters, the main dictate is, do not work with the other side. Now, I'm not in favor of a squishy middle, but let's just get to brass tacks here. If we are a divided country, roughly 50-50, and we see it everywhere we look, the only way we're going to move forward in a democracy is by figuring out how to reach a solution where nobody gets everything they want, and yet we can still move forward. And that is the exact behavior that is forbidden by our current election system. So we have to change the way we elect people so that when they get to Congress, they are free to legislate, they are free to make deals and to make complex trade-offs in the system. Right. And that's what final time voting is. We have to change the inputs, the political inputs to change the policy outputs. Yeah, we, we have to, we don't even have to change really who gets elected. We have to change how they get elected so that they can do different things once they're elected. So let me say how we do that. So we're gonna make with final five voting two simple changes to how people get and keep their jobs because that's what drives their incentives. The first is let's get rid of these party primaries because they're unrepresentative and they tie everybody's hands. Instead, we will have in every district a single primary where there's only one ballot and everybody running is on that same ballot. You go to the polls, you pick your favorite, they, the polls close, count the votes. The top five finishers advance to the general election. So now instead of having one Democrat and one Republican, and usually knowing which one of those is gonna win already, you're gonna have five moving forward. If it's a super red district, you could easily have three Republicans, two Democrat, uh, and two Democrats or a Libertarian and two Republicans, et cetera. So that's the first part. Now, between the primary and the general, we benefit from a competition between five ideologies, uh, histories, visions. And then in the general, we make a second change because now that we have the benefits of competition of five, we have to figure out which one of those five should win. And it's not quite as simple as we think because what we don't want to do is inadvertently, accidentally elect someone with, let's say, 21% of the vote which could happen when you have five people if the vote were to split relatively equally. We need to find out which of those five has the broadest support from the most number of voters. And to do that, we implement instant runoff voting. So how that works is that every voter goes to the polls and they see those five candidates and they have the opportunity to rank those candidates in order of preference. Like Bradley Tusk is my favorite. I rank him number one. But if I can't have, you know, Bradley Tusk, I'll take 
uh, Amy Jones, and she's number two, all the way down to, you know, that Catherine Gale, can't stand her, she's my last choice, okay? Now, and voters can rank, rank as many or as few as they want. Now, when the polls close, uh, we count all the first choice votes. And then at that point, we see who's ahead. But we're actually going to enter then a series of instant runoffs. So after we count all the first choice votes, someone's in first and someone's in last. The candidate in last is eliminated from the race. And if you had selected that candidate who's now out of the race, your single vote is automatically transferred to your next choice who is still in the race. Then we count the votes again, and we once again eliminate the candidate in last place. Transfer people's single vote to a remaining candidate, and we continue until we have only two people left. And at that moment, the person with a true majority over 50% is obviously the winner. So we have done two things. We have taken the determining election from the primary to the general, which means we've re-enfranchised every general election voter in the country and made sure they're no longer wasting their time. And most importantly, we send people elected through this system to Washington, D.C. with the freedom to represent their entire district instead of a narrow swath of one side or the other. As I always say, and this I'll say in the conclusion, final five voting is not designed to necessarily change who wins. It won't turn a blue district red or a red district blue. Final five voting is designed to change what the winners have the freedom to do are incented to do and on whose behalf they are doing it when they get to Washington, D.C. And it is that kind of behavior that is required in a legislative body in a democracy if we are going to rationally move this country forward. And you have to have a different turnout base for this all to work, or if only the most sort of hardcore ideological people still continue to show up. Um, how does that give the politician then who wins the freedom to ignore them to a certain extent and be willing to reach deals and still keep their job? So it's a good question. So first of all, in the party, in the primaries, now the party primaries, again, it's, they're defined by people turning out on the political extremes, even though lots of us turn out who wouldn't be on those extremes, like I vote in primaries. I suspect you vote in primaries and many of your listeners do. I, I can't because I, I live in New York and I'm disenfranchised as an independent. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're an independent, so you can't vote at all. Okay, so yeah. you never get to choose nope. um, who's going to win because the decision is made in a contest you can't even participate in. So oh. hmm, let's ask ourselves if that's democratic. Now, so what happens, though, is, yes, in that first round election, Yes, all of those same people will turn out, but a lot of other people will now be able to turn out as well, such as in New York, independents who are currently prohibited from participating in party primaries. In the top five primary, that's part of final five voting, everybody gets to participate and everybody gets to run on the same ballot. So you will increase participation. You also uh, will increase it because it will be 
more worth your time to show up. But less important than whether we increase the participation in the primary is that even if it stayed the same, because you're advancing five, there will be other candidates that make it through. So let's say in a Republican district, we need, um, let's, take an let's take an example from Blue and Red. So right now, if there's a Democratic district, there's a, there's a debate, there's a conflict, uh, a competition in the, in the Democratic Party between the progressive wing and the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. So if it's a blue district, it would make sense that out of the primary, a progressive would advance and a moderate would advance to the general election. And there will be enough voters in that primary likely to advance one of each and perhaps another one or two as well. And in a red district, there's a competition right now between uh, Trump-supported candidates and let's call them establishment Republican candidates. And that fight plays out only in the primary. And the only people who weigh in on that fight are those people who vote there. Whereas now in this system, there'll be enough people voting in the primary to advance one of each of those kind of candidates at a minimum. And then the general electorate voters can decide which of those represents that district the best. A majority of those of that general electorate will decide. So you don't need more people because you already have more people in the general election. And what we've done is make the general election the election that decides. So that's how you got your more people. And you don't worry about all the politicians trying to just redistrict and gerrymander the district so finely to, to mitigate the impact of the broad. Oh, such a great question. So actually, they can't. So there's a lot of agreement among many that gerrymandering the practice of drawing boundaries, you know, to support one party more than the other is not democratic. But here's the thing. It's we can't change it. You know, the Supreme Court hasn't helped uh, make that possible to change. Even now, the states that have gone to nonpartisan redistricting are having a hard time really doing something that's nonpartisan. And the last reason is that a lot of areas are geographically simply really are more conservative or more liberal, even if you drew them in the most, quote unquote, nonpartisan way possible. What Final Five voting does is mitigate the deleterious effects of gerrymandering, because here's why gerrymandering is the huge problem it is for us. And it's also why it's the huge opportunity for the parties, because it is gerrymandering combined with party primaries that makes the problem. Because right. gerrymandering is what makes, if you didn't have a party primary, gerrymandering wouldn't be so bad. Because right now in the red district that's been made red, that's what makes the party primary the determining election. But once you go to final five voting, even if there's 70% uh, Republicans in one district or 70% Democrats in that district, the primary won't determine, the general election will determine, which re-enfranchises all of the, you know, of the 30% of people who are in the other party, but as well, it means that those 70% of Democrats, many of whom didn't turn out in the primary and they turn out in the general, will have their voices heard in a new way. So you will elect people out of a general electorate in a blue district who may not be the people that would have made it out in a primary in the blue district. And that's why we see people on 
figures in both parties often talking about, I hope we get a good candidate out of the primary, because sometimes the candidate that makes it out of the primary actually can be a problem um, in a general electorate. So this, this really, really leaps past the nefarious uh, problem of gerrymandering. And so uh, how do you actually go ahead and implement this? So I, I think from a conceptual standpoint, most people who study this stuff would agree that if, if you were to kind of combine broader turnout with more candidates, with the deciding factor being the general election in the primary, you can get a more representative view of the district. Um, but obviously, people who like the system the way it is and are in power right now aren't looking to make it easier for you to disrupt them. So how do you go about actually executing? So there's really two separate questions there, because uh, the way we go about executing this change doesn't necessarily have to involve the agreement of the current you know, elected officials and politicians. But when I, I'll get to that in a moment, let me first say one thing. It's a I think it's a myth that people in the industry of politics would be hurt by final five voting and that they necessarily like it the way it is. Let me give you an example. If I talk behind closed doors to someone who's in Congress right now, these are the points I would make and do make. This is not a job reduction program. There will be exactly as many seats. So if you were now able, you, who came to Congress, as most people do, because they have a lot of talent and they want to serve the country and they want to solve problems. Most people are there for all those right reasons. Under Final Five Voting, you could take your talent, your passion, your love of country and go to Congress and actually be able to do and accomplish the things you wanted to do when you went into this career. And when they realize that, which they do, they'd rather have it changed. That doesn't mean they're going to publicly go out and ask for it, but it does mean that uh, their jobs would be much more satisfying and they would individually have a lot more agency than they do in the current system. Uh, Because right now, once they get there, they really have to do what their party leadership tells them to do and they have very little agency. So it's a job improvement plan. And by the way, it doesn't take money out of politics, which is to say the business of politics will still run campaigns and ads and need consultants and the media will have, you know, will uh, make money covering these new kinds of races. It's just that now the way to be successful in the industry will be by making the customers general election voters happy and by solving problems instead of right now in this inappropriately regulated industry, the way to be successful is to do the things we see right now, which is gridlock grandstanding, demonizing the other side and solving no problems. So there's nothing wrong with people in the business of politics doing super well, as long as that means that the customers are doing well at the same time. You create a win-win industry instead of win-lose the way it is right now. And so given that you're combining elements of both kind of open primaries and ranked choice voting, what does the data say to date about the jurisdictions that have used those reforms? Has it moved politicians towards the middle? Has it moved outcomes towards the middle? Yeah. So so let me first say final five voting is not about, and I personally am not about, prioritizing a squishy middle or thinking that the best way to solve things is to 
you know, split the difference between these two opposing views at this point. Actually, as you know from your own business endeavors, the the way to get innovation and have breakthrough results is actually to have a wide diversity of opinion. Innovation and breakthrough results don't usually arrive from some, you know, split the difference middle of wherever any human endeavor currently is. So what Final Five voting does is the best of both worlds. We protect a huge diversity of opinion, which a democracy needs and which we have. So you'll have five visions competing in every general election. So we're going to have this diversity of opinion, and then people will get elected from across the spectrum, and they go to Washington, D.C., and they get to have that ideology and to advocate for it. But when they when they advocate powerfully for it and they end up at a point through the deal making and the legislating with an infrastructure bill like the one we have now, um, let's say that they now can vote yes on it, even if it's not everything they want from their ideological perspective or even from their district's preferred preference but they can vote yes on it because they know they can craft a victory under final five voting. They won't automatically lose their primary. So it doesn't mean people give up their views. It means that they can do a moderate thing without needing to be moderate. So the moderate thing that may get done will be enhanced by the fact that we protect the quote unquote fringes and extremes and have all of their views and the innovation that often arises there as part of the dialogue and the system. So I, I just absolutely you know, love it. And by the way, Bradley, I didn't answer your question of how we get this done. So should I tell you that? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was about to ask it again, so perfect. Oh yeah, okay. So article one in our constitution actually gives the power to change the rules of elections to Congress to every single state. So we do not need Congress to say, okay. And we also in half the states do not even need the state legislature or the governor to say, okay. In half the states, they have ballot initiatives. So referendums. So people have heard of California's, you know, Proposition 8, Proposition 13, whatever their propositions are, where the citizens actually vote to change something. So that's a very likely way that we will see this change happen. In fact, Final Five voting is no longer just a theory or a pipe dream. In November of 2020, Final Five voting was passed in Alaska by the citizens. So go back to 2017 when I published my first work with Harvard, um, out of Harvard Business School, a man named Scott Kendall in Alaska read that work, and he led the creation of a ballot initiative for what I would call final four voting, because they have a top four primary, which is what I was recommending back in 2017, and took it all the way to the win with the help of obviously many other people. So the incentives in Alaska changed in November of 2020 when everybody else was preoccupied, you know, understandably so, with the other things in the election. And their first elections under this system will be in November of 2022. But what's interesting is that incentives change. So behavior has changed already. Let me give you an example. 
in Alaska, they passed this change for their state legislature as well. And soon after it passed, with everybody elected under the old rules, they were heading towards a shutdown because of a budget dispute. But they were able to avert that because in their house, in their assembly, there was a coalition created of Democrats, Republicans, and independents that, that created a majority to pass this budget and keep their state open. And that is not a coalition that would have been politically feasible under the old rules of the game. So interestingly enough, it's not how you got elected that dictates your incentives. It's how you're going to get reelected the next time, which dictates your incentives, which means that if we pass this in four more states in 2022, we'll have, for example, 10 senators whose incentives are different as soon as, you know, November 9th of 2022. It's pretty exciting. Definitely. So last question then, because I, I think your your experience, life experience, kind of interests really encapsulate, I think, a, a lot of our audience and listeners, which is, you know, w- what have you learned and kind of going from the business and tech world into the political world and what, um, you know, other people who are listening to this podcast and thinking about, hey, I, I want to, you know, I've been successful in tech and venture and startups, and I want to use that uh, to do some good in the political world. W- what should they do? My recommendation is that people use the same tools they've used elsewhere. And here I would say, look for the best ROI and to invest in either your time, your network, your resources, any and all of that. And here's why final five voting, I would then answer to that question that they would ask. Final Five Voting, it offers really the best ROI of any philanthropic or political investment out there today, because for the traditional philanthropic investments, let's say people invest in issues they care about, something in healthcare, something about addressing inequality, something about education, et cetera. We need to solve those problems in an entrepreneurial way, let's say in the not-for-profit sector, but to change things at scale, government is going to have to change. So for any issue we care about, it matters whether our government continues on its existing dysfunctional path or becomes capable of taking the lessons learned and and turning them into changes in the four and a half trillion dollars of annual government spending. So that's one thing. The second thing is that you want to invest in things, you know, the ROI, like relative, the investment relative to the gain you get. So I'll, I'll scale this. Um, we, the country, a small number of people in this country, spent around $950 million in two Georgia Senate races in, you know, 2020. And, or was that 2021 when it finished? Anyway. So almost a billion dollars. And that was to, you know, for two seats, one of which was only good for two years. When we change incentives with final five voting, that changes the incentives ongoingly for everybody elected through that system. And the cost to deliver that change for the entire Alaska federal delegation and entire state government by by ballot initiative was $6.2 million in Alaska. 
Now, that's Alaska. It's going to cost more here. But let's say it costs, um, you know, 20 million per state. We can do five states for 100 million. We can do 50 states for billion. billion. So we can change the incentives for, you know, everybody, but still allow them to keep their ideology and still keep strong parties, in fact, strengthen parties, or we can continue to fight over which people we are going to send into a dysfunctional system to continue to be only permitted to do dysfunctional things. And we can live in the fantasy that one day, quote, our side is going to take over entirely, or we can realize that what we're doing, you know, simply doesn't work. And that insanity is the definition of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And then we can change what it takes to win and keep jobs in politics so that when they get those jobs, they can do those jobs well. Yeah, I totally agree. How do people learn more about this and how can they get involved and help you? Yeah. So my website is political-innovation.org. And what I would say is get in touch with us there if you want to develop a campaign in your state. And we have campaigns in many states now that we can connect you with. Also, what I really would request is that people take a look at my TED Talk. So you can just Google you know, my last name, which is Gail, G-E-H-L, and TED Talk, and you will find it. And that is the 17-minute version of going from cheese sauce to you know, final five voting and how we get it done um, in 17 minutes. And if you take a look at that and then please share it, share it, share it, that will make a very big difference. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, everyone knows the age eternal story of going from cheese sauce to final five voting. So yeah, right, exactly. I, I suspect <laughs> there'll be a lot of update there. So Catherine, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, and, and congratulations on what you're doing. It's incredibly necessary. Thank you, Bradley. 